Tonight's scripture reading is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It can be found on page 2 of your bulletin. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Tonight, in light of our upcoming fall retreat, I thought we would take a break from the Promises of God series and look at Philippians chapter 2, the passage read to us, Paul at his finest hour, as some would say, with a longing to grow in our community deeper and wider to reflect God and his love for us and the city. And I realize I'm talking to the choir when it comes to community because many of you know and have benefited from community right here. And you know firsthand what it's like to have meaningful connections with people who are like-minded and share Christ with you. And I wonder what it would be like if we could broaden that circle to include not only those who are here. Obviously, it must start here. And we have a lot of work to do here too. But what would it look like for us to include those in our community in the city, to be a reflection of God's grace to this city, to be, as we would say, a demonstration of the fullness of the gospel in Washington, D.C. So with that in mind, let's now turn to Philippians 2. But before we do, let's pray together. Father, we come and ask that you would give us strength as we look into your word Strength not because it's so hard to hear what you have to say, but it's hard to believe and to apply your truth. We can't do it on our own. We need your spirit to press these words deeper into our hearts and to give shape to our faith so that the beauty of the gospel we celebrate here would begin to push us into this city, into our neighborhoods, so that we might become the body of Christ, salt and light, the picture of who you are and your love for them. So would you now speak to us, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. Believe it or not, I have two sons. I know I talk about Daniel all the time. He gets all the spotlight. But I do have another son, James. Now, James uh, is the older, lesser-known son. Um, But he also is unique in many ways. 
where James struggles, uh, where Daniel basically grabs all the spotlight as a singer entertainer. I don't know if you've seen Daniel like dance or some of the the songs we sing. He would do the the floss. Is that right? The floss uh, to to some of the songs we sing. It's really entertaining. Now James doesn't excel in that field, but he's uh, he's athletically gifted. He's just really good at sports. Ever since I can remember, he's really good at hitting the ball, kicking the ball, throwing the ball, or shooting the ball. And uh, so I encourage him to fan into flame the gift of God. I got to borrow something from the scripture, right? That's what we pastors do. And uh, James's favorite sport is basketball. And uh, I realized right away that although he is gifted, he is going to be challenged in that sport uh, unless he drinks a ton of milk. So I would say to James, James, Regularly, I said, James, man, did you drink milk? And he would say yes, and I would ask, how many cups? And if he says one, then I would say, dude, you need to get downstairs and drink a ton of milk. Now, this one night, you know, uh, you know we did our evening routine, got him dressed, prayed together, put him in bed. And uh, before I said my final words uh, of that evening, I, I looked at him and said, James, did you drink milk? And he looked kind of puzzled, like, hey, man, we just, like, prayed together, and we're changed. I brushed my teeth. Why are we talking about milk? And I said, James, did you drink your milk? And he said, no. And I then began my dad's speech. You know, we all, fathers, we all have one, right? Whether it's sports or academics or being nice to your siblings, we all have a speech prepared in our back pocket. And so I begin, like, James, you got to drink milk. And you fill in the blank, right? i got ten reasons why he should drink milk. And uh, I admit I was a bit pushy, as loving parents can be sometimes. And uh, that's when James looked up at me, and with a serious look, He said the words that still ring true in my heart. Is it because you want my money? (laughs) What do you say to that? I was appalled. I mean, how is that even a question? Of course I want your money. After... Gathering myself, I said to him, James, I don't want your money. Your mom does. Uh, No, no, she doesn't. Sorry, Grace. If you know Grace, you know that she is not like that. Okay. No, I said, James, no, it's not that. I want to see you thrive in what you love. To reach your full potential. Like, that's what I want. I share this story to point out the obvious, trying to be a community that embodies the gospel is not without its challenges. You all know this. It's hard, as Tom prayed, to really step out. I mean, it, it takes a lot of courage to befriend someone when we have to say goodbye to so many friends that are near and dear to us. I mean, we get hurt, and after a while, we, it doesn't even bother us anymore. We, we come up with defensive mechanisms, right? And we hold everyone at arm's length so we aren't hurt when we have to say goodbye. But if we can get over that 
hurdle and we engage to care for people, sometimes they question our motives. They push themselves away from us. And all the while, we see very little fruit. And I know many of you know exactly what I mean. But despite the challenges of trying to cultivate this kind of community, Jesus calls us to be one as he and the Father are one. That was his final prayer in John chapter 17. That we would be one just as he and the Father are one. Why? Because Jesus knew that love lived out in practical, tangible ways in a community is the best apologetics. And the early church proved it. Their love that stretched across social, racial, and gender lines didn't fit into any known categories at the time. People were... They were bewildered and confounded by this new religion and the gathering that ensued. So they came and they watched up close. And before long, they found themselves drawn in because they couldn't resist the beauty and the goodness that this community represented. I would say it's probably the most compelling sermon in all of the book of Acts. But how do we become this community? One that is rooted in the truth of God's word. One that works for the good of this city. To long for mercy and justice right here. One that welcomes those who are racially, socially, and even politically different from us where we live out the command to love God and others well. And Paul's words, where we would consider others better than ourselves. How do we become that community? Do we just try harder, do more? Maybe. But that's certainly not where we start. We have an obligation for sure. But we don't look to ourselves for that strength. No, here in chapter 2, Paul shares the secret to becoming that community. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or as NIV has it, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. The secret to becoming a gospel community is to have The mind of Christ, the mindset of Christ, which is to love others humbly and selflessly. For some of you, that may mean that you actually come and sign up to be a member of this community, this church. Can't believe Janae lasted all three Intro to Grace DC seminars. One is more than enough. Can't believe you did all three. And maybe for some of you, it's actually taking the plunge and joining a community group. These small groups that meet throughout the city once a week. And be known, be connected, do life together. And maybe for some of you, it's finally saying okay and serving on a partner ministry or a ministry team here 
at our church that you've been putting off for some time. Or, for some of you, it means welcoming someone new at church, even if you know that you may never see them again. What would next step look like for you? What would it mean for you to step out in faith in response to what Paul calls us to, to foster this community, to have the mind of Christ? But here is the question that we really want to unpack tonight. How do we get the mind of Christ? Okay, in order for us to be a community, we need the mind of Christ. How do we have the mind of Christ? I would say it comes down to this one thing. It's faith. Faith in Christ. And that's where Paul takes us. After he gives us the command in verse 5 to have the mind of Christ, he begins to then unpack what Christ really is, who he is, and what he has done. And so in our remaining time together, we'll look at these two things. First, let's look at Christ's divinity. There is much debate about who wrote this hymn. Did Paul write it, or did he simply modify it for his argument's sake? The truth is, we would never know. But what we do know is that this hymn is doctrinally rich. And it gives us a peek into the early church's teaching on Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, his equality with God, his identity with humanity, his incarnation, his life, his suffering, his obedience, and even his death. Now, some argue that Christ's divinity is a later invention fabricated by his followers, something that gained traction hundreds of years after his death. For me, though, one of the strongest arguments for the early dating of the New Testament and therefore the reliability of the Scripture is what the New Testament does not say. Nowhere in the Gospels or even in the epistles do the authors talk about a significant historical event that would have confirmed Jesus as God or, at the very least, a very powerful prophet. And that event is the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Jesus once said, back in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And he was referring to his death and resurrection, but many thought he was speaking about the actual temple. And what a case the New Testament authors have. Hey, see, Jesus said, destroy the temple. And he will raise it up in three days. And see, behold, the temple is destroyed just as he prophesied. But the New Testament does not leverage this as an apologetics point. Because when it was being written, it didn't happen. The Bible's silence on this point shows that soon after the death and resurrection of Jesus... The church had developed a rich understanding of the person and the work of Jesus. So what did they believe about him? Well, that he believe, they believed that he is God. Verse 6 says, Jesus was in the form of God. The Greek word for form, which is morphe, uh, is used twice in this hymn. First, to speak to the divinity of Christ in verse 6, where it says, in the form of God and later, to speak to the humanity of Christ in verse 8 when it says in human form. This 
word, this word morphe means that which truly and uniquely characterizes a given reality. So for Christ to be in the form of God means that he was not just kind of like God or even mostly like God or that he was made in the image of God like you and I are, but that he was in his very nature and essence truly and uniquely God. And this is what the new Uh, This is what the good news of Christ says. That this God, before he came onto this world to take, take on human flesh, to offer his life as our substitute, made a promise that he would leverage all of his wisdom, his goodness and power to work for our good. That he entered into a covenant relationship with us long before we could earn anything from him. So that we might know and understand who he truly is. This is our God. That he is involved in all the details of our lives. And is orchestrating all things visible and invisible. For our ultimate good. And he protects us from known and unknown uh, harm. And leads us in the paths of righteousness to green pastures and still waters, that we might know his heart, his love for us. And this is the same God who would eventually pay the ultimate price to redeem our past and to secure our future. Let me ask you, how does knowing this God, being in relationship with him, change the way you view yourself? We often think that Christ made a mistake with me, that somehow I've been overlooked. We look across and we compare notes. We keep score and we say, well, I'm not as good as that person. It seems like God is favoring that person a lot more than me. But if we really understand in the divinity of Christ, that he knows all things and cares deeply about you and is involved in all the details of your life, How does that change the way you view yourself? And how does that change the way you deal with stress at work? How does that change the way you deal with difficult relationships in this community and in your neighborhood? I think it would change us quite a bit, don't you? That if we really believe that Christ is for us, That there is never a moment where he says, oops, I forgot about him. Oh, no. But that he's using all of his resource to bring about our ultimate good. I think it would free us, don't you think? It would free us from all these things that entangle us, that occupy our mental and emotional space, so that we can love and care for others. As Christ calls us to. Contrast what Jesus does when he basically lets go of all the privileges. When he he let goes of all the rights, all the prerogatives of being God. To empty himself, to enter into our world, to be present with us. Contrast that with you and I. 
We're not in the form of God, yet we count equality with Him often, don't we? And we're always grasping to be just like Him. We try to amass wealth, power, and privilege so that we can be like God. And along the way, we burn bridges, we crush people, and we even kill ourselves. These are the things that God has promised us already. Again, if we believe who Jesus is and and, and the promise that he has extended to us, would we drive ourselves to the ground trying to grasp for the things that God has promised to give? Look, the only way you and I would be set free from the bondage of self-centeredness and pride is if we believe that Christ, this Christ, God himself, out of mercy and grace, has committed himself to us. And we got to let this truth sink into our hearts. Not just once, but time and time and time again, so that it would compel us to freedom, to love. Paul's not done yet, though. Let's look at the second point, Christ's humanity. In verse 7, he says, Jesus, who being God, did not consider equality with God. He emptied himself and took on the form, there's that word morphe again, of a servant. When, we, when Jesus took on human flesh, it was more than Superman wearing glasses. He didn't pretend to be one of us. No, he became one of us. And that's why he knows us fully. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And that's why the author in the book of Hebrews says, Jesus is the great high priest who knows, who understands, and sympathizes with us. He remembers that we are but dust. And he does not despise us. Rather, he is patient long-suffering, even when we take a step forward and two steps back. He is our great cheerleader. He's with us every step of the way. And then in verse 8, Paul says, Jesus didn't stop there. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Paul shows us the depth of Christ humility, and selflessness. Not only in letting go of his privilege, but entering in and lowering himself again and again and again until he couldn't do it anymore. And Paul wants us to get this because unless we understand the divinity and the humanity of Christ, his letting go and his radical generosity to us We're never going to have the mind of Christ that would then compel us to move into this community and relationships to give. Because the natural dispensation or disposition for all of us, if we don't really have the mind of Christ, is to hoard, is to grasp. But Paul says, no, you have something better. Here, Paul says, look, At the humility of Christ, he humbled himself and chose a manger for his birthplace. 
He humbled himself and identified with an oppressed people group. He humbled himself and learned about trees and tools and worked as a carpenter for the most of his life. He humbled himself and remained silent during the unjust trial. He humbled himself and subjected himself to public humiliation. And he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. Behold our God. This is what it means to be truly divine. That he does not lower it over us as you and I would think and are prone to do. But no, he takes that towel and wraps it around his waist. He brings water so that he can wash our feet. And eventually, that same love will be manifested on the cross as his arms were stretched wide to say, this is how much I love you. And we think, well, Christ did that so that he could be our example or to pay the price or to deal with God's judgment. No, this is what it means to be divine. To radically give oneself to serve for the benefit and the good of others. And that's why when Jesus said to his disciples who were jockeying for positions of power and privilege in the coming kingdom. Jesus said, no, not so with you. Because to serve is to be divine. To love even at great cost to oneself. That's what it means to be truly human, image bearers of God. And therefore, God the Father exalted him to the highest place. He crowned Jesus and gave him a throne and a name to go along with that, name that is above every name, so that all of us who have received his care, his love, his grace, would look to the nail-pierced hands and we would worship. We would behold God in his humility, in his sacrifice, in his giving of himself. And that would be the anthem for all eternity. But here on this side of heaven, we can sing that song too. Just as Christ has served us, we can now then serve others. And to work together to a beautiful community, a compelling community, one that demonstrates Christ, one that demonstrates the beauty of the gospel. But in order for us to do that, we need to reflect upon who he is and let those words, what he has done for us, let those words shape us. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we give you thanks that you gave us your very best. You gave us your son. And Jesus, we give you thanks that you gave your all so that we might know your love for us. Lord, I ask that you would help all of us to reflect deeply, to meditate deeply upon who you are and what you have done. So that in knowing we might believe and in believing we might become to have the mind of Christ. So that we might work together to demonstrate you as a body of Christ 
in this community and in this city, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.